Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. The great chapter in the book of Acts that tells us about Saul's conversion. So Acts chapter 9, we'll read beginning in the middle of verse 19 through verse 22. For several days, Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. And in the synagogues, immediately he proclaimed Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called on his name? And he has come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. On our trek through the book of Acts last year, we arrived at chapter 9 and the conversion of Saul, and then came the new sanctuary and many special services and a lot of special focuses through the summer and the early fall. And now I am ready to move back into the book of Acts. And I prayed for many weeks over the summer. Should I keep going in the book of Acts, Lord? Is it time for a, uh, to leave the book of Acts and move in another direction on some thematic approach or some other book study? And uh, the longer I thought about it and the more I prayed about it, the less I could shake it off. It felt like I would be doing the book of Acts a kind of dishonor to drop it at chapter 9. And then this fall, as I thought and prayed, it seemed like preaching on the book of Acts for the last year in the old sanctuary and the first year here in the new sanctuary would be like a a way of uh, building a bridge across this transition that would say as clearly as anything I could do that... The worship that happened there and the worship that I hope happens here really will vindicate itself as authentic by the book of Acts being fulfilled in Minneapolis through Bethlehem and other churches. And so as I thought about worship in a new sanctuary and last Sunday's message about how worship is shown to be authentic, namely by obedience and love and mission. And then I think of the book of Acts, which is an inspired story about how the church spread so powerfully in the early church, I thought if the book of Acts, in the midst of worship, could become again our model and our inspiration, then yes, it would be an honor to the memory of that sanctuary. And it would be a vindication of the worship that happens here. It would be a realization of what we're about in this new building. Namely, the fuel of mission. It is true at Bethlehem that we say the the goal of the universe, the ultimate goal beyond which is there no other goal, is worship. The ultimate goal, therefore, of this church is worship. But as long as there's lostness out there, as long as there's pain out there, as long as there is any kind of trouble and misery out there, Worship is not only the goal of all we do, it is also the fuel to get out there and bring about worshipers. 
That particular function of worship will not exist when the kingdom comes. Because there won't be any sin, there won't be any pain, there won't be any lostness to go after. All worship will be is an end and not a fuel or means. But as long as we are here in this fallen world, it is not only the ultimate goal, but because there's lostness and sin, it is a fuel and a fire and a flame back here to get out there and bring about worshipers to that ultimate goal. And so when I look at the book of Acts and I see the kind of flame that was spreading through the early church with just a few ragtag believers taking over the world, I say, for worship's sake, let's keep Acts on the table for a while. So for the rest of this year, and then I'll pray and talk to the elders and think more, and we'll see about the new year. But I want to pick up with you where we left off in the book of Acts last spring. And it might be good for me to just give you a little catch-up here on what's happened in the preceding verses Saul was a Pharisee who hated Christians. He wanted more than anything in his life to stamp out Christianity and thus, in his mind, honor God. And therefore, when he was on his way to Damascus with authoritative letters from the priest to capture more Christians and put them into jail, his whole life was turned upside down when Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road. In an instant, he was shocked, he was stunned, and his whole world crumbled before him. And in Damascus, a worldview fell apart. He had thought Jesus was a despicable criminal, dead. And he was cleaning up the remnants of the blasphemy. And now, he had to reckon unmistakably with the truth, he's not dead And he's not only not dead, he's the Lord of the universe. He can make light shine out of the sky. He can blind a man. He can make visions come into his head. He can send a man named Ananias and tell you what your future is going to be. He's not dead. He's alive. And he's the Lord of the universe. And can you imagine how his world crumbled? His whole life has been dedicated to the death of this man and the sponging out of those who believed he was alive. And now everything has to change. That's what happened in Damascus. Now what happened after he was converted? Luke, in telling this story, I think, wants to put on the front burner of Paul's life this truth. Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. And the way he does that, look at verse 20. First of all, the very first thing Paul does is go to the synagogue and preach and proclaim. And it says, in the synagogue immediately he proclaimed Jesus, saying, he's the Son of God. And then verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, that is, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Fulfiller of all the Old Testament promises. I wonder if it's an accident or if it's amazing. It's amazing to me that the way Luke tells the story, the last thing that comes out of Paul's mouth as an unbeliever in verse um, five is, who are you, Lord? That's the last thing we hear Paul say as an unbeliever. 
And the first thing we hear him say in verse 20 is, Jesus is the Son of God. I can't think that's an accident in the way Luke tells the story. The first thing Luke wanted to put on the table in Paul's mission, and the first thing Paul puts on the table for the, uh, these uh, Jews to consider in Damascus was, Jesus, the rejected, despised criminal dead in Jerusalem, is the Son of God and alive and the Christ that you've been hoping for. Now, my prayer this morning in this message and at the table and in all we do here in this room is that the Father in heaven might reveal Jesus as the Son of God to you. And I'd like to pray with you that God would do that before we move on. Father, we're going to learn by the end of this message that flesh and blood does not reveal Jesus as the Son, but you alone do. And so my earnest plea and my heart's desire is that by your sovereign grace, the eyes of our hearts would be opened and that those who have seen you would have a fresh revelation of your glory and that those who have never beheld your self-evidencing glory as the Son of God would see you for the first time and be drawn irresistibly into fellowship with you today. I pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen. I asked the first question, what does it mean to say Jesus is the Son of God? What did Paul mean when he said that? What would you mean if you went downtown Minneapolis and over the lunch hour said to a group of people, uh, Jesus is the Son of God? And they looked at you funny and said, sounds like mythology. What do you mean he's the Son of God? What would you answer? I would give two answers. Number one, it means he is God. Colossians 2.9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Philippians 2.6, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to when the incarnation arrived in God's timing. Or Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, in these last days... God has spoken to us by a son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he created the universe. He is the radiance of the glory of God and bears the very stamp of God's nature. Or consider a little verse a little farther along in, in Hebrews one, this amazing verse. Of the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God calls Jesus God. Or John 1, 1, we're all familiar with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Namely, Jesus is the Word, is God. So the first thing I would say at this luncheon downtown after I made my statement like Paul made his statement in synagogue and all the Jews said, what does that mean? Or maybe they said, 
blasphemy. I would say what I'm saying is, is that Jesus is God. I worship him. Here's the second thing I mean when I say Jesus is God. Oh, let me, let me give you a quote. I've got to say one more thing. I almost left out my quote from C.S. Lewis here that I, that I wrote down that is so, has been so significant in my own understanding. When we say Jesus is God, we don't mean that there are two gods. We mean there is one God, one divine nature. C.S. Lewis talks about the meaning of son of God or begetting God, God begetting God, like this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. A bird begets eggs which turn into little birds. And when you make or create... You make something different from yourself. A bird makes a nest, a beaver builds a dam, and man makes a wireless, or we would say today a a computer. Jesus is the Son of God, means he is begotten of God. But that word begotten is a metaphor, it's a word picture to hold together two truths. One is this. The Father, God, is not God the Son. And God the Son is not God the Father. They are two spheres or centers of consciousness, and they are two persons, and they can relate to each other in love. The other truth that's being held together there with that one is the Father and the Son are one God, not two gods. One essence, one divine nature. And here's the picture that I use. It helps me most. From all eternity, God the Father has had a perfect, full reflection and image of himself. And in that image of himself, the radiance of his glory, bearing the very stamp of his nature, all the fullness of deity is represented and stands forth as a separate individual. And therefore, it is being begotten in the sense that it is the reflection of God that he has of himself, the image, the radiance, the glory, the form, equality with God. And yet it is co-eternal with God. There never was a time when God didn't know that he was God. There never was a time when God did not fully behold the fullness of his perfections in the image that he has of himself. And therefore, there never was a time when the Son did not exist. Therefore, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Arians and uh, all those kinds of teachings that cannot grasp the co-eternality of the Son are deficient in their understanding of who Jesus is. So the first thing I mean then when I say Jesus is God or Jesus is the Son of God is that Jesus is God. Here's the second thing I would mean. Jesus is loved by the Father with a very unique divine love and loves the Father with a unique divine love. In Colossians 1.13, Paul says, We were transferred out of the kingdom or dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. That's the literal translation. The kingdom of the son of his love. Isn't that remarkable? The son of his love. What that implies is that there is a unique 
love between the Father and the Son. And it comes out in the Gospels like this. At the baptism, the dove lands on the shoulder or comes around Jesus somehow and a voice comes out of heaven from the Father and says, This is my loved Son. I am pleased with him. And then at the transfiguration, the heaven opens again and the voice comes, This is my loved Son. I love my Son. And in Ephesians 1.6, Paul simply says that Jesus is the loved one. That's his name for him, the loved one. And so the second thing you mean with this image of father and son is that the love that flows here is the love of a father for the son and a son for the father that is divine and unique and unparalleled in all the universe. Those two things. Jesus is God, and the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father uniquely. Second question, why is that so crucial? Why would it be the first thing that Paul says in his preaching? Now, to answer that, let me give you four verses and see whether or not you don't think this is a front-burner issue. If it shouldn't be on the front-burner of your life and your talk, as well as Paul's. 1 John 5:12 says, God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. And he who has not the Son does not have life. I want life. Therefore, that's a front burner issue for me. I want life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life now, and you won't have life forever. If you have the Son, it's done. You have life now, and you will forever. Next one, 1 John 2.23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. I hope that makes you burdened for the Jewish community. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also. So my question is, is it a front burner issue whether you have God as your Father? Is that a small, low priority issue? Whether God is alienated from you or near you as Father? That's not a small issue. That's a front burner, top level priority issue in my life and in most of your lives, I believe. And therefore, if it says, he who confesses the Son has the Father, if you don't confess the Son, you don't know God. You don't have God. He's not your Father. That's a big issue. I can see why Paul put it. On the front burner in Damascus. Text number three. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the time had fully come, God sent forth the Son, His Son, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Is that important? To be left like a foundling in the street of sin and alienation, or to be adopted into the castle of the king. And the way God adopted you 
from the misery of being a foundling in the street into the privileges of the king's castle is by taking the son of the castle and killing him in the street. That's a front burner issue in Damascus and in Minneapolis and in your life and my life. The son was killed so that we might become sons. It's just an amazing thing to me that God's will, God's heart, is that he, he wants a big human family. And he's willing to sacrifice the one son in order to get it. The last text is Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live, here it is, I live moment by moment, hour by hour, year by year, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the Son was given that we might enjoy the privileges of adoption. If you have the Son, you have the Father. If you have the Father and the Son, you have life. And you don't just have it forever. You have it right now by faith, living day by day, resting in the power and the love of the Son who gave himself for you. So I'm not surprised that it was the first thing he said when he went into the, the synagogue in Damascus. This Jesus, I can imagine. Can you just imagine what the first sermon must have been like for a man who days before had scoffed, spit upon, hated Christ and tried to kill Christians. And now before all those people who were expecting him to do the work to get rid of Christians out of Damascus, he stands up, clears his throat in Damascus and says, brothers and sisters, I'm here to say today. This Jesus, whom we crucified, is the Son of God. What happened? What happened in that room? Pandemonium. I'll bet. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to say something about that. But my last question is this. If my prayer for you this morning, that you would see afresh the glory of the Son today, feel yourself having the Son and the Father and life in Him, if that prayer is to come true, what must now happen? What must now happen in the next few minutes as we close? For some, it's already happening. How do you come to know the Son? Matthew eleven twenty seven says, No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. So how can you know the Son? Matthew 16 gives us the clue. You remember what Jesus did? He had his disciples near Caesarea Philippi. He says, who do men say that I am? And they give a list. Wrong. And they say, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you remember what Jesus said? How did Jesus account for that discovery? He said, blessed, blessed, blessed. That means God blessed you. What just came out of your mouth? 
was a blessing from God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven just revealed that to you. You know what flesh and blood means, don't you? It means your brain, your emotions, and everything you are as a human being without God. Human beings cannot recognize a despised, rejected, crucified criminal as the Lord of glory. It can't happen. If you say it has happened, you know what you do? You cancel out the word blessed in that verse. God has blessed you, Simon Barjona, by revealing, revealing to you this is God's work in your life. And that's what has to happen this morning. I wonder if it was an accident that in Galatians 1, where Paul describes his conversion and what happened on the Damascus Road, he uses words almost identical to the words of Jesus in response to Peter's testimony. Listen. When God was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with flesh and blood, but I went away to Arabia. Men didn't show me that Jesus was the Son of God. Sure, I heard preaching. Sure, I read my Old Testament. Sure, I heard testimonies and saw Stephen die. But God revealed his son to me because I am a hardened, blind sinner apart from this miraculous work of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, and blessed are hundreds of you in this room right now. You should hear God saying, Jesus saying, blessed, blessed. You don't know how blessed you are that you have seen the glory you just don't know how blessed you are that your eyes have been opened. Even if you don't have a theology that understands how your eyes got opened, you are blessed, blessed, blessed. Because God Almighty revealed His Son to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in this room right now or you wouldn't hang on my word and give a hoot about whether you believed in Jesus. And so if you're in the category right now of being ready to walk out and wondering why I'm preaching so long and not caring anything about what I'm saying, then here are the three things that need to happen in your life. Number one, you need to listen to the story of Jesus. You've just heard some of it. Keep listening. You can do that. And number two, you need to pray, help my unbelief. Open my eyes. Reveal to me your son. And then third, by the grace of God, you need to believe. Believe. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And who is it that overcomes the world but him who believes in the name of the Son of God? May God reveal his Son to you. Let's pray. And as we close now, Father, do what you did for Peter, for many. Open the eyes of the blind. Soften the hearts of the hard. Do what you did for Lydia. The Lord opened her heart 
to give heed to the glorious gospel. And it was the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who shone into her heart to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We'll have some teams of people standing here at the front after this service. And if you would like to pray with them about anything in your life at all, they'd love to pray with you. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace as he reveals to you the truth of his Son. And all the people said, Amen.